this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hi there and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host Ian Cook. Today we're talking about Recasting the Region, Language, Culture and Islam in Colonial Bengal by Neelesh Bose. The book is published by Oxford University Press and Neelesh is Assistant Professor of History at St. John's University. The book is a real fascinating and rich analysis of political mobilisation by Muslims in late colonial Bengal. I learned a lot, I think many people learn a lot. It's one of these great books that takes a well-known part of history and completely retells it from an angle that we never really thought about before. I had the pleasure of speaking with Neelesh just a few moments before. Okay, so without any further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Neelesh to the show. Thanks a lot for your wonderful book and thanks a lot for coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. So before we turn to the book itself, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your professional background and how you, became to be, how you came to be interested in the topic that we're going to discuss today. Uh, certainly. So uh, I'm currently an assistant professor of history at St. John's University in New York City, and I teach modern South Asian history, modern global history, and courses about thematic topics like decolonization, imperial history, settler colonialism, and cultural history of South Asia. My intellectual trajectories uh, preceding this project are diverse as I studied anthropology and social sciences when I was an undergraduate and a master's student. And I also hold a personal and um, academic background in theater and performance studies and literary criticism. I became interested in this topic, though, and in history as a discipline when I noticed the, the commonplace assumptions that were being thrown around about Bengal and about their history of South Asian nationalisms in general, two broad sites that have been very productive in modern history and in post-colonial studies. And so I found that the his historically the term Bengali to mean a set of cultural identities, usually referring to the bhodrulo or the refined, educated gentlemen of the colonial period, um, often reformers, novelists, nationalists, hid from the view, this focus on them, hid from the view, the fact that the majority of Bengali-speaking people have for a long time and currently are Muslims. And this unmarked, unstated identity of Bengali somehow equaling Hindu, and at that time uh, a caste Hindu um, designation, is one that struck me as having potential for uh, a departure for a topic, for, for research. So as a historian, I feel the way to do this problem justice was to focus on the history of Muslims in Bengal on their own terms, and in particular related to language, literature, and the culture of the region, facets that were usually associated with the more visible Hindu communities of Calcutta and all-star nationalists. Um, and so usually the focus on Muslims has been about Muslim separatism, so-called, or earlier periods of history in India, which is how Muslim subjects of Bengal are usually uh, understood. So in the context of those well-studied moments of late colonial India, the transition of power, the emergence of Pakistan, Bengal was, of course, central to these 
world historical changes, but only now are we beginning to fully grasp the Muslim component of these changes. And part of my interest is to insert um, Muslim voices into that history. And I think this is what's so fascinating about the book. Um, I was telling you just before we came on, it's, it's exactly I probably have this 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 understanding of of this period and, and of the region of this commonplace, very sort of Hindu way, which is, I guess, also how colonialism is, is taught a lot in this region. So turning to the book itself, I suppose my first question about the book is, is, is what does the studying of the literary traditions of Bengali Muslims tell us about late colonialism in general and also about the formation of Pakistan that, that we didn't already know? Uh, yes, certainly. So studying the literary traditions of Bengali Muslims tells us a great deal about the formation of Pakistan and the end of the British Empire in India from a new angle than has been usually considered uh, in history as a discipline. So traditionally, uh, these moments have been studied from the vantage points of uh, so-called high placed politicians like the Muslim ministers of Bengal in the 1940s, uh, Fajrul Haq, Nazimuddin, Surawardi, these three men were the last three Muslim ministers of Bengal up until 1947. So there's often studies of those um, high-level politicians. Um, often there have been presumptions about the masses of Bengali Muslims, most of whom uh, were that they were simply duped and deceived into believing in and supporting a Pakistan. And so my approach on the literary cultures shows that the intelligentsia in Bengali Muslim circles, uh, those at least who are writing in Bangla, had actually conceived of and debated the idea of Pakistan in local terms, using terms familiar to them from various registers of the Bengali language, and also that the broad march of Bengali Muslim intellectuals and writers sought integration into pre-existing entities, whether that of the Bengali literati dominated by caste Hindus, whether of the larger community of Indian Muslims, uh, often defined through Persian and Urdu high culture, or as a part of the newly um, ascendant family of nations. So this insight, I think, gives us two new ways of thinking about late colonialism um, and the idea of Pakistan. So one, um, Muslim political aspirations in the late colonial period are not then defined by separating from something fully formed, at least in this context of the Bengal intelligentsia. Rather, through their vantage point, we see that a lot of Muslims are actually approaching the world in a manner previously unnoticed. They're contributing to something, acting upon um, pre-existing ideas, trying to change what's around them, as opposed to simply being acted uh, upon by others. They're, they're actually authorizing how they understand things like Pakistan. An adjunct insight is that the idea of Pakistan uh, authorized by Bengali Muslim intellectuals, though of course it must be stated it did not materialize in the way that they had visualized, but it sought to integrate minorities. It visualized this not through abstract rhetoric, but through the specific populations of Bengal itself, their own histories, um, and specifics of the locality of Bengal. So one idea floating around is that Pakistan was just a, you know, an idea that didn't really resonate with anybody, and that's why it failed, at least in Bengal. But rather, my research shows that it, it did quite strongly resonate uh, with those writing in Bangla. A second challenge I think that this kind of research offers on the literary cultures of Bengali Muslims is the historical understanding of regions, regional identity uh, in South Asia. And as you uh, working in India and anyone working in the scholarship of South Asia knows, the regional histories, the regional uh, political formations 
of South Asia, like in Tamil Nadu, in Tamil, in the Lama language, in Punjabi, Telugu, Marathi, and of course we could name many others, they all carry forth very deep histories. Um, and this itself is a part of the history of thinking about being Bengali and, and inhabiting a region. So whereas the, the presence of classical Indian nationalism in the Calcutta space, the, the, the classical nationalists from the Swadeshi period onward, because of that focus, I think the regional dimension of Bengal's history has become obscured um, within an uh, obsession with nationalist movements and uh, formal anti-colonial movements dominated by and large by Hindus. So my work shifts the gaze somewhat, still based in Bengal, uh, but to how Muslims participated in the creation of this regional identity, which was based on their specific histories of relationships with the language, with its literatures and its political shape. So this focus, I think, creates uh, other second layer insights. It, it creates a wider and deeper archive into colonial India by focusing on what Muslims wrote and did and said about Bengali, uh, which was considered a local regional language, but not for them. And then two, it opens the space to then consider the constructed nature of any regional identity, allowing future scholars to perhaps focus on groups and imaginations that need not speak only to the Hindu-Muslim relationships, but perhaps the imaginations, the political imaginations of Adivashis, tribals, migrants of various types, and how they have thought about their own regional identities outside only of the exclusions or inclusions of the nation. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful, Nilesh. That's a, that's a great summary of your of your thesis that you lay out in the in the introduction. Now let's talk a little bit about the first substantial chapter. And then here you discuss uh, Bengali literary history and how it's interacted with Islam, both in the medieval period and also the colonial period. So I was wondering, I know this is a big a big ask, but could you give us a, a brief overview of the most important works and trends? Uh, yes, uh, certainly. And I have to uh, preface these comments with with uh, uh, disclaimer that, of course, this history is a vast, uh, vast history, and it is only, in a sense, um, being uh, excavated properly uh, currently. And I'm just going to be giving a few very, um, very brief uh, uh, points of, of summary. So at one level, uh, Muslims uh, in Bengal, they were part and parcel of evolving literary cultures in what we now know of as modern Bengali, just like in Tamil Nadu, for example, Muslims had a great deal to do with the creation of uh, now modern Tamil, from the 16th century onward, also in Sri Lanka um, and various other parts uh, of South Asia. So from the mid to 14th century to the mid 16th century, Muslims alongside Hindus uh, wrote mostly poetry, um, but there were many uh, who wrote uh, alongside Hindus in a variety of contexts. So there are individuals like Shah Muhammad Sagir, he wrote in the late 14th, early 15th century, and he wrote a version of a Muslim folktale, Yusuf Juleka, which had been studied extensively in later generations, in fact, by many of the people that I study in the 20s and 30s of the 20th century. Um, and we could say this moment, late 14th century, is when there is a clear presence of Muslims writing um, in perhaps what we would call proto-Bengali. Uh, another individual, Dolat Kazi, um, he wrote quite a lot of what could be now called secular, in quotes, narrative romantic poetry, uh, reflecting a mixture of influences from Sanskrit, from epics like the Ramayana, Mahabharata, and uh, Vaishnava songs, Podabuli, uh, or Vaishnava songs. Also, two local Bengali sultanates, led by Hussein Shah and Nusrat Shah, 
respectively. This is from the late 14th to the middle 16th century. They uh, patronized Sanskrit epics like the Mahabharata, Ramayana, ordering translations into Bengali for the first time. And this is a first for the region. Previous kingdoms, uh, whether led by Hindus or Buddhists, were uninterested in local languages. And so this is one of the innovations uh, that uh, the presence of Muslims brings in the region. Also, finally, as a final point about this context, writers like uh, Shah Muhammad Sagir, I mentioned, Mentioned, they actually reflected on writing in one's own local language, um, and this is from the 15th century, in this case in Bengali, and it is not at, at all a precursor, a straight precursor to the politics of writing in one's quote-unquote mother tongue, but it is notable that even back then in the 15th century, there were Muslims in Bengal who were reflecting about what it meant to write in Bangla. Um, and that is something that I think is notable for the pre-colonial world. For the colonial period, Orientalists, colonial officials, alongside Hindu pundits who were consulted by these officials, colluded to create what was called a quote-unquote vernacular standard language. They created grammars and ways of learning the language, primarily for company officials and then later colonial officials. But the language as it was defined in this nexus of pundits and orientalists and officials, it was defined primarily through Sanskrit-derived words, um, references to Hindu gods and goddesses, and it was purged of its living Perso-Arabic elements, uh, many words and references, which had been part of the local literary and linguistic landscape since the 17th century, at least, perhaps even earlier. So at the same time, there are two forces that are merging to produce by the end of the 19th century what was called Dobhashi, or meaning two languages, uh, Dobhasha, uh, Bangla, or in some uh, registers it was called Muslimani Bangla, or the Bangla of Muslims. Um, and how did this form of language come about? One, uh, a push from the colonial state during and right after the 1857-58 rebellions to monitor what they had called, quote-unquote, Muslim literature. So they were, in a sense, on a mission to collect and identify any literature that was written by Muslims uh, in the local language. And this is something going on throughout India, but in Bengal, it is uh, a major um, activity of the colonial state. And they themselves created this term called Muslimani Bangla. And what did that mean? Um, any books that they had collected that were written in Bangla, but that had a lot of Urdu words and Persian words in them. And what this meant, that there was already a thriving marketplace, which there was by the 1860s, of cheaply produced books in the booming print market of both Calcutta and Dhaka, the two urban centers of Bengal, of Muslim folk tales like Yusuf Juleka, uh, Hatim Thai is another, Shotopir uh, was shared by Muslims and Hindus, written in this sort of language, this so-called Muslim Bangla language, catering to the so-called, uh, quote-unquote, non-standard Bengali sort of language, whereas by that time, there already was a quote-unquote vernacular language that was defined um, in a default fashion as a Hindu language. Finally, from the 1870s, Muslim preachers, revivalists, and promoters of Islam start flooding rural and agrarian Bengal, almost in every case from somewhere else, from North India, Central India. Um, and some of them start to make contacts with local Muslim leaders, and they decide to use this sort of language, this quote-unquote Muslimani Bangla, to reach the masses in their 
work of preaching about the religion. So because of all of these forces, we have by the time that my book begins in earnest, which is in 1911, there already is a set of precedents for a Bengali Muslim literary culture. It is just one that is not recognized by the cultural power brokers of Bengali, i.e. Hindu elites, nor is it recognized by broader Indian colonial society. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Thanks for that. So I think you've really set the scene now for us to learn about um, Kazi Nazarul Islam and Mustafa Ahmed. And this is we learn about these two characters in chapter two. So I was wondering, can you tell us why these two figures are so important and how do they relate to other literary movements at the time? Uh, yes, uh, these two figures were extremely important uh, for the time period as they were leading uh, leading personalities in both literary and political developments in the 20s as the world was undergoing huge upheavals just after the Great War with India not receiving any uh, of the potential upgrades uh, promised to her for her war efforts and experiencing a countrywide economic downturn. Um, Muzaffar Ahmad emerges as a young activist in one of the first socialist voices of colonial India, um, Bengali Muslim, uh, and he's starting the Communist Party of India later in the 1920s. And he hails from the eastern regions of what we now call Bangladesh, from an area called Noakali, um, and he migrates to Calcutta in the late 1910s, and he seeks work primarily in the docks and the various elements of the edges of uh, Calcutta, which at that time was a booming center uh, for the business of colonial India. Um, and he, as a young person at that time, right at the end of the war and early 1920s, got involved in both workers' politics in the city and that is where he met um, Kazi Nodrul Islam, who was a young poet um, who had been stationed in Karachi, the other side of uh, colonial India, uh, during the war. Um, he had never went to the war, but he was stationed and trained and ready to go fight in the war. But then when he comes back, uh, he becomes quite radicalized as a critic of colonial India. And then both of them meet and, and put forward, in a way, the world of Bengali Muslim literary development Developments as well as an evolving socialist um, critique of colonial India uh, together in Calcutta in the context of uh, migrant workers and others who are organizing by and large uh, for the benefit of workers and uh, peasants who are migrating to Calcutta. So both of them together established and published magazines and newspapers from their headquarters in Calcutta, such as Dhumketu, or the Comet, Langol, or the Plow, uh, Novojug, or the New Age. And all of these explored the local Indian plight of workers and peasants, uh, but also included new and stirring imagery that drew from pre-existing Bengali images, like of boatmen and boats, the riverine landscape, um, as well as the broader Muslim world. And this is the first time that this is being done in uh, modern Bangla, and both of them are quite uh, uh, aware of and skilled in both vernacular Bangla that I had mentioned, um, that was defined as a Hindu language, as well as the broad register of Bangla available to them within the Muslim literary formations. And they are signaling events of the rest of the Muslim world, referring to Egypt and Turkey, as well as the evolving communist movement uh, throughout the rest of the world, in particular in Asia. Muzaffar Ahmad is a part of the burgeoning communist movement in Asia as well, and as I mentioned, starts the Communist Party of India in the middle of that decade. So Nodrul Islam, the poet, he is known for a variety of works throughout his lifetime, and uh, this in the 
1920s. So he, this is starting in 1922, all of these magazines that I just mentioned. And this is called his uh, Rebel Phase. Um, and he writes a poem entitled Rebel in Bangla. And this poem both refers to the vast um, diversity of the Muslim world, but also refers to the locality of, of Bengal within colonial India. And with uh, Muzaffar Ahmad, um, they both work on a magazine called Shammobadi, uh, Shammo or Samya meaning equality, and Shammobadi meaning a person who supports equality or roughly translated as egalitarian. And Nojula also writes a poem uh, with that title, um, and that's published there, it's published elsewhere as well. And it clearly shows the links between an evolving literary culture and an incipient workers' movement um, in this time period. Both of these individuals are central to the history of colonial India. And my emphasis here and my interest is, is in how language and literature provided an important site for the organization and conceptualization of politics uh, in Bengali Muslim circles of that time. <laughs> Thank you so much. Now let's move on to the third chapter here. I suppose that the main focus on two different sites. One is the literary world of Dhaka, especially this Muslim Sahita Samaj, and also the countryside as well. And so I was wondering, what, what were the debates emanating from these two sites, and, and what did they tell us about Bengali culture and Muslim identities? Uh, yes, uh, absolutely. So from these two sites, which really I uh, track from the mid-1920s to the mid-1930s, we learned debates in Muslim communities in Dhaka. So this is a, an urban center, but a very recently noticed colonial center. Um, so in a sense, a very young urban settlement, as well as the countryside of what is now Bangladesh, the agrarian countryside of East Bengal. In both of these places, um, the debates in the Muslim context were fundamentally about local issues, and they were written in Bangla, and they reflected spaces of public engagement and political life that were different from those in Calcutta, a much older colonial city, and different than familiar Muslim spaces in colonial India like Delhi, Hyderabad, Lucknow, which carried pre-colonial um, spaces, we could say, of uh, Muslim politics. For Muslims in Dhaka and the agrarian eastern region, the Bengali language was not something to worry about, as it was in Calcutta, where very few Bengali-speaking Muslims were a part of the public sphere by this time, whereas the vast majority of Muslims in the East were Bangla um, speakers and writers. But rather, in the Eastern side, debates from the mid-20s proceeded to tackle uh, substantive local issues, such as women's education, relationships with Hindus, peasant politics, and most importantly for a history of Muslims, how to approach the Prophet um, Muhammad and the inspirations of Islam for the betterment of India. So interestingly enough, uh, many intellectuals gathered in the society that you mentioned, Muslim which gathered in Dhaka University, a very new university, started in 1921. And they start, many intellectuals and writers and, and students actually at Dhaka University participated in this society, which literally means Muslim Literary Society from 1926. And so it's you know, very new for the region. Um, and in this society, they debated the very issues that I just mentioned about women's education, peasant politics, and the role of Islam. And so one debate was about whether or not Muslims should see the prophet as an actual prophet 
uh, or as a human being whose frailties and trials and conflicts and problems should be learned from as human beings. So the attempt to humanize the prophet in order to consider real world problems like poverty in the Muslim world and particularly in rural Bengal, under education, um, issues of under education relating to women, um, these are all uh, discussed in this context of what should Islam do for the communities of Bengal? And it's by no means unique to this time and place. It has long history in other parts of the Muslim world, this idea of humanizing the Prophet and learning from his experiences. But for the first time, it is being aired in Bengal and in this world of language being central to their identity. So I focused on this society in this chapter and did a fairly detailed study of it as it met regularly in Dhaka University. As I mentioned, a university set up by the colonial state to cater to the Eastern Bengali population, meant primarily for Muslims, but as one of the broader points that I make throughout the book, in every step along the way, there were Hindus involved in these various developments and, and some other. There's Buddhists at times as well. So when we shift our gaze to the Muslim context, it is always inclusive of others uh, who are not only Muslim in this Bengal, um, in the Bengal context. Um, one other point here is that the university is very new and the spaces of public associations and debate were new to the East Bengal space, quite unlike what is happening in Calcutta, where this is a much older uh, tradition, we could say. And I focus somewhat on writings in this chapter, also emanating from the Mofashol or the countryside, to show that individuals far from urban centers, places like Chittagong, for example, which is far in the east, you know, close to what is now Myanmar, were writing about the Bengali language. Um, they were writing about peasant politics and improvement. There are a lot of pamphlets and short books that emphasize the piety of thrift, labor, and property in the world of being a Muslim. And all of this is written in a prose style of Bengali that would have been comprehensible to those Dhaka uh, urbanites and university uh, professors and students. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Now let's talk a little bit then about the, the, the fourth chapter. And here the temple focuses between 1933 and 1939. And we learn about a magazine called Bulbul and uh, also how peasant experience made itself heard in Bengali public life. So could you tell us a little bit about this period, the main literary and political currents at the time? Uh, yes, and so this journal, Bulbul, uh, which is Nightingale, um, this is alive in that interwar period of the 1920s and 30s, where so much uh, self-consciousness is being raised all throughout the world, I think, in European and European-American contexts, and also in other parts of Asia. Um, the year of 1933 is also a year where in the Dutch East Indies, a literary journal, Pujanga Bore, uh, was begun, called The New Writer. And it also, in a very comparable way, began to shape new literary directions um, aimed at a creative cultural regeneration in what later would become Indonesia. And uh, I also think that it's important that at this time, fascism of various types is being implanted in Europe and cultural nationalisms are also emerging. For my protagonist, it is a moment of explosion of interest in locality, folklore, and research about language and local culture. I'd say for the particulars of the Bengal Bengali Muslims in this journal, it shows two things. Uh, one, that peasant movements in the countryside were growing uh, and resonating with larger numbers. And by the end of the decade, it made very common sense for Muslims in East Bengal to see the major peasant political party uh, 
like the Congress or the Muslim League, uh, there was a political party called the Krishak Proja Party or the Workers and Peasants Party, an organization that spoke um, primarily on behalf of agrarian Muslims and their needs and their issues. It was common sense for Muslims to see this as a political party that was about uh, Bengali Muslims, given that they're, they're almost all uh, members of this party were Bengali Muslims. Now, my book doesn't detail this social history, um, as many others have done that, but I offer another side of this process, how writers and intellectuals and sympathizers to the rise of peasant politics invested in increasingly more visible ways to research about the language that people would speak in the East, conducting analysis about forms of medieval manuscripts uh, called puntis um, as living forms of language spoken and at times recited in the countryside, in the lives of those people that the Krishak Porja Party would be organizing. So, uh, just as one one example, uh, particular individuals stick out in this endeavor to document these forms of language. One person is Abdul Karim Shaito Bisharud, and that last uh, term is an honorific. Um, Shaito Bisharud, this person who protects uh, uh, language literature, Shaito, um, who spent his lifetime collecting old manuscripts hundreds of manuscripts, and writing many essays and giving speeches at literary societies, publishing his results in this journal, Bulbul, educating the Bengali Muslim public about the nature of their literary history. And this is happening throughout the 30s. Uh, the, this journal is the main uh, venue for this. And in addition to showcasing this growing research into the localized uh, form of Bengali Muslim language, the journal also published original poetry as well as translations of Urdu and Persian in to Bengali, so individuals that would be known elsewhere, Muhammad Iqbal, for example, a lot of his work was being translated into Bangla and uh, visible in this journal. Also, it contained debates about issues of the uh, era, like changes in demography, um, the communal award, which was an award that changed electoral politics in India in 1935, um, and various issues about education, particularly women's education, that was the main issue facing uh, Bengal's politicians at that time. So uh, one of the conclusions about this is that the presence of the journal Bulbul um, uh, transformed the peasant movement from one that was vaguely Muslim into one that was specifically associated with Bengali Muslim culture um, as the link is one that was made continually by the writers uh, of this journal. Thank you. So as we shift on a little bit forward in time into the fifth chapter, and we're looking here at the, the ends of empire, specifically we're looking into the politics of A.K. Fazlul Hook and others as I suppose a very Bengali idea of Pakistan was promoted. So someone if you could tell us a little bit about this individual and about his ideas as well. Yes, uh, Fajrul Hok, a very influential politician of the era of the late colonial period, who promoted a variety of causes aiming at a settlement of debates uh, between Hindus and Muslims in late colonial Bengal. Um, given the honorific title by his supporters, of Sheri Bangla, or the Tiger of Bengal, graduated from uh, Calcutta University in the early 20th century, qualified as a lawyer. At that time, there would have been very few Muslim graduates of Calcutta University. And he spent much of his early life advocating for peasants and working in local politics. Um, in the er, 1930s and early 1940s, he became more active in uh, all Bengal peasant politics and then also joined the Muslim League. 
uh, moving or articulating in public the famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, Lahore Resolution of 1940. And he saw Pakistan in those original terms of that Lahore Resolution, which mentioned the self-determination of Muslim provinces, and the term that was used was states in plural, um, and indeed he felt, like others in the Bengal-Pakistan movement, that the Lahore Resolution guaranteed the self-determination of Muslim states in a future federated India. So his outspoken support for that principle as Minister of Bengal from 1941 to 1943, rather than any antipathy toward the rest of the Muslim League, um, drew criticism from the rising star Muhammad Ali Jinnah, as well as forces at the center of India, like many of Jinnah's associates, leading to his resignation in 1943 from the ministership of Bengal. Um, in the meantime, the literary developments I had explored earlier in the 20s and 30s, they had culminated in a new institutional reality of Bengali Muslim intellectuals outlining and writing about and, and writing poetry and prose about the new East Pakistan or Purbo Pakistan in Bangla from 1942 to 1947. In this vision of Pakistan, which was written about, which was visualized with maps um, in Bengali. East Pakistan would be one part of a federation in which Pakistan and Hindustan and other states would share power in a future federated independent India. And this part of the conception of Pakistan was similar to the rest of the country's Pakistan idea, but in Bengal, it was specifically imagined um, in the literary societies of this period. 42 to 47, as a place where minorities, especially Hindus and other groups, uh, tribals, for example, would have a place in society. Indeed, the Bengali Pakistan idea had included in its vision that there would also be a so-called Dravidistan or an independent state in the south um, for those who supported many of the movements in Tamil Nadu. Uh, and so this was a part and parcel of their vision of the future. Um, Pakistan also would be a place inhabited by a majority of Muslims and would be inspired by Islam's tenets, but would include all of these various groups because they were, uh, for the Bengal case, central to that identity of a regional Bengali uh, language, which is something that they're also quite uh, interested in, these Bengali-Pakistan activists. So at one level, especially the role of religion, um, this was kept quite vague in the 1940s. And at another level, it was a poetic uh, vision replete with all sorts of literary references, not necessarily a practical uh, way forward. In any case, this Pakistan uh, was a place that was in line with the original Lahore Resolution, guaranteeing local self-determination. The literary side just amplified the content of what would be in Pakistan. It filled out the details of what would be uh, in the new Pakistan, a fully developed Bengali Muslim language, folklore, music, and the content of all that was supposed to be East Bengali, as none of this material was ever considered quote-unquote Bengali before, it would now be considered East Pakistani. Thank you for this. Um, so the sixth and final substantive chapter, you look into the activities of, especially you look into the activities of two individuals, one is Abdul Hashim and the other one is Mauluna Bashani, and, they, and you argue that their idea of Pakistan is one in which social justice for minorities was forefronted. So again, like as I asked you previously, tell us a little bit about these individuals and, and then let us know what their idea of Pakistan was. 
Uh, yes, um, Abdul Hashim and Maulana Mahashani, two pivotal figures uh, born in the early 20th century who were part and parcel of the major transformations in Indian politics and the movements that affected Bengali Muslims from the perspectives of organized religion. Now, one important point that I make throughout the book, uh, or a point that is essential to my thesis, is that when the idea of Pakistan comes around, its most active proponents are not actually coming from the world of organized religion. Um, but there were a few major such voices, including Hashim and, and Bashani. So uh, Hashim was active in formal politics from the 1920s as a part of the Muslim League, but he was very open to sources from the Islamic world and Islamic philosophy, as well as quite well-read in socialism and Western philosophy, um, supportive of the idea of Pakistan in theory as a state that would protect minorities. Abul Hashim made uh, quite a lot of statements about this, like his counterparts in the literary societies. In fact, in, in many cases, he is uh, offering the same kind of argument about Pakistan, that it would be a state in which the minority problem would be universalized based on the Muslim experience of colonial India. Um, it would also be grounded in local Bengali diversity and culture for, for Abul Hashim. He notably did not support the partition of Bengal in 1947, as he, alongside Surawardi and Shortbosh, Surawardi being the representative from the Muslim League in power at the time, and Shortbosh. Uh, Bengali Hindu leader from the Indian National Congress, um, they all had proposed a united Bengal, a fully all Bengal nation state in the summer of 1947. Um, the plan did not work. It did not find acceptable channels within the politics of that moment by either the central uh, leaders of the Muslim League or the Congress or the British Empire, but it was a, an idea that uh, Hashim himself supported. Comparable to Muhammad Iqbal in the 1940s, Iqbal dies in 1938, but Abul Hashim's ideas are very similar. He worked hard to popularize a political and philosophical program amongst Bengali Provincial Muslim League workers and volunteers. And this really starts in 1944, after all of that literary um, and folklore research had already been done, to educate volunteers from the rural countryside of Bengal who started to work with the Bengali Provincial Muslim League to educate them about the practical aspects of Islam that were useful for economic and social betterment, as well as pearls of wisdom from Western philosophy, particularly from Marx, readings of Marx, um, his own particular readings of Marx as well. And he would hold uh, meetings in the evenings that were styled as Western-type seminars, where he would talk about these things, really to merge an understanding of Islam with uh, these sorts of ideas from the Western world. And Hashim and his associates would often discuss what was called Rabbaniyat, or an Islamic state based on respect both to the creator of humanity and also to the individual and collective life of its citizens. And that would expressly include non-Muslims, and this was something that was discussed during these meetings. In the words of one junior member at these meetings that I discuss in my book, um, they were about discussing the necessity of reconstructing Islamic thought in the context of accumulated knowledge of man in various spheres of man's being and becoming, which would include, of course, this engagement with uh, Western social and political philosophy. And what is important about Abul Hashim is that the language used in the slogans articulated by his workers 
in his classes um, regarding land belonging to the tiller, one well-known phrase used at this time um, in Bengal in 1944-45. It referenced a longer tradition of activism in Muslim communities, but it reflected the fact that the local Bengali language was the link that allowed this to happen, and he is uh, um, front and center in that signature change in Indian politics. Um, He also authored a book that was published in 1950, um, but compiled and written uh, in the 1940s, titled, titled The Creed of Islam, or The Revolutionary Aspect of the Kalma. Long discussion of both the history of Islam and its decline, meaning that the ethics that had informed Islam's emergence had disappeared in his view in the present, and the need for reconstructing Islam to match the needs of the present, and a consideration of the impact of Marx and a critique of political economy um, for the present-day world, but joined to a program of the reconstruction of Islam. And this, in this, we could say he follows very similar discussions by Muhammad Iqbal about 15 years earlier. But what is significant is that he's working very hard to navigate through the tumultuous changes of the 1940s in a manner that both authorizes the new nation state of Pakistan, giving it some coherence and some meaning, but also trying to contain the energies of local Bengali Pakistanism that had been in play um, for uh, the entire period, really from you know the 1920s onward even though it was not named as Pakistanism in the 1920s and 30s, the energies um, uh, for authorizing a local change to internal power politics had been in play uh, since right after World War One. Now, about Maulana Bhashani, I mentioned him briefly at the end of the work, and he's, of course, a, a very important figure for the history of the 20th century, arguably more so for the post-1952 uh, period, 1952 being the year that um, uh, a group of uh, students had uh, revolted against the Urdu-only policy of the Pakistan government and were shot um, in Dhaka. But um, he is of the same generation of Abul Hashim and the same broad political temperament committed to a particular variant of Islam, committed to local politics, to peasant politics, and to a vision of Pakistan that highlighted the roles of uh, the agrarian eastern side of what is now Bangladesh. In the early 20th century, he attended famous Deoband Madrasa, and he became involved, like Abul Hashim, in local Bengali Congress politics, but was alienated, also like Hashim, from the uh, domination of local politics by Hindus in the Congress, and then uh, joined the Muslim League in the 1930s and 40s. And he was involved in the politics of protecting the property of smallholding cultivators, um, mostly, but not all, uh, Muslims uh, in various parts of eastern frontiers between Bengal and Assam, by and large. And this led to his continued emphasis on Pakistan as a space for economic uplift for the mostly peasant population of eastern Bengal. Um, that's his position in the mid-1940s. Um, in the post-47 era, he was amongst the most prominent activists who overturned Ayub Khan's government. Um, and opened the space for what became Bangladesh in 1971. So he's a very important figure. And I would say that my book uh, is aimed at trying to understand the prehistory to how some of these politics uh, did not simply emerge out of the Pakistan moment only, but speak to a different regional history that would be difficult to capture if we only looked at state uh, leaders from the top or if we only looked at um, the social historical changes from the bottom, but just the, the ideas being circulated within the Bengali Muslim public sphere 
are what in many ways inform the longer durée of politics in the 20th century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that that point comes through really forcefully throughout the pages. I mean, we've sort of, as is always the case on these podcasts, we've had to rush through what is a very rich and, and detailed analysis. So I was wondering, is there anything that we've missed that you'd like to that you'd like to flag up for the listeners? Uh, no, I think uh, you know, I think uh, we were able to discuss the main points. I would say that one broader uh, thematic point is that the l- late colonial period, um, from the vantage point that I have. Uh, attempted to um, display is uh, for me really a time of creativity. You know, so ideas of Pakistan are presented here not for their success or their failure in the political realm after 1947, but for how an idea like that emerged out of a local history and is also a marker within regional Bengali histories. And I think that is uh, something that will then point uh, in different directions for the future and the future research that uh, scholars uh, later will be able to do about these issues. Mm-hmm. So keeping, keeping the focus on the future now that this book is out, what are, what are your current and future projects? Uh, well, I'm currently working on two projects, uh, both of uh, uh, which are uh, motivated by some of the insights and some of the uh, questions that emerged through doing this research. One is an ongoing project um, that I'm doing in collaboration with uh, researchers in the United States and in Bangladesh, uh, and it is a collaborative oral history project of intellectuals who were alive during the era of decolonization in the 1940s. And uh, my collaborators and I are primarily interested in some of the people that I've studied, but many I was unable to fully include in my book, um, who really made a, a huge impact on the global world of thinking about um, decolonization in disciplines like history and sociology and political science, um, who were, uh, in a sense, coming after the history that I have explored. And um, I'm involved in uh, both recording interviews of intellectuals of this time period and also working on um, writing a history uh, of decolonization from the vantage point of intellectuals who lived through it. Um, another project that I've just begun, which is in its very early stages, is a history of the Brahmo Shamaj, which was a religious reformist organization um, begun in the early 19th century in Calcutta. But it actually had a very uh, interesting and dynamic life in the hinterlands of India, not just the urban center of Calcutta, but it actually was very active in what is now Bangladesh and was uh, quite instrumental in starting schools, primarily girls' schools, and also um, focusing on local religious practices in places from all the way in the east of Bangladesh to the north in, in uh, North India, in Bihar, also in Punjab. And um, also, uh, that organization was very interested in translating primary texts about religions. And this kind of, of uh, research is, in a sense, in many ways in its infant stages. We don't know that much about exactly what uh, organizations like the Brahmo Samaj did. To give you one example, uh, the first uh, Quran that was translated into Bangla, into the standard vernacular version of Bangla, was done by the Brahmo Samaj in the 1880s. Um, and it was done really to focus on Islam as a part of a world family of religions, which was you know, the current language of the time in the 1880s and 1890s. But then that Quran reached, um, by the end of the time period, by the 1930s, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people throughout the evolving world of print. 
And it is through the agency not of Muslims only, but through broad changes going on in Indian society that is really the, the focus of my interest in that project. Wonderful. They, they both sound absolutely fascinating. And I suppose we look forward to hearing more about them further down the line when they reach some sort of publication or maybe even with your, with your um, oral history project, maybe even there'll be uh, recordings available uh, out there. Who knows? Definitely. Yeah, that's, that's, that's wonderful. That's wonderful to hear. And um, so I guess there's not much more for me to do apart from to thank you again for coming on the show and to recommend the book to our listeners. So thanks a lot. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. All right, take care. Thanks so much for downloading the new Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today we've been talking about Recasting the Region by Nilesh Bose. Thanks again for listening and hope to see you again next time. ta